Mortification of the Flesh, Chapter 5. Reproof and correction administered to presumptuous sinners. I come now to handle the mistakes on the other hand. Those who think their corruptions are mortified, when indeed they are not. The heart of man is deceitful above all things, Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9, and a bundle of guile, and a man himself is a proud creature, and very apt to have a high opinion of himself. Now there are three kinds of mistakes that wicked men make in thinking their corruptions are mortified, when indeed they are not. Number one. They conclude their corruptions are mortified because they find an opposition against some sins. Number two, they conclude their corruptions are mortified because they find themselves or they find in themselves the power of restraining grace. Number three, they conclude their corruptions are mortified because they have left and forsaken some of their sins. A man may have been an adulterer, a swearer, a drunkard, or so forth in former times. But he is not one now, and thus he concludes his corruptions are mortified. And more will be covered on this in chapter 6. These are the three kinds of mistakes wicked men make regarding the work of mortification. I will address the first two in this chapter and the third in the next, showing you the weakness and insufficiency of these arguments as evidence a work of mortification is upon their hearts. And so to begin with the first, case number one. A wicked man concludes his corruptions are mortified because he finds in himself an opposition against some sins. Answer. An opposition to sin may proceed from the light of natural conscience, which may convince a man what is sin and what is not. Even wicked men may have a law within them that makes them loathe oppose and resist some scandalous sins, such as sexual impurity, drunkenness, and so forth. Their consciences may accuse them when they do ill, and excuse them when they do well. Now, this is only a generalization. I shall now descend into particular instances, and I beseech you, Beloved, lend me your thoughts a little, for I do not think there is a man or a woman who has ever lived, though ever so wretched and vile, that has not withstood some corruption and sinful motion in their heart at some time or another. Thus I will show you eight particular examples in which an unmortified man may yet resist corruptions. He may oppose them, number one, jestingly, number two, sparingly, number three, partially, number four, hypocritically, 
Number five, slavishly. Number six, constrainedly. Number seven, faintly. And number eight, politically. Number one, you have an unmortified heart if you oppose corruptions jestingly. Such a man fences with sin as actors do upon a stage. They pretend to hurt one another and appear to hack and hew at each other, yet never deal a deadly wound or draw a single drop of blood. Their combat is merely for sport and show. And thus, when a wicked man opposes and resists sin, he will be careful not to hurt his sin. But a mortified man, he fights in sincerity, contending with it not as a fencer, but as a warrior who engages his mortal enemy, knowing that he must kill or be killed. A godly man opposes sin as the deadly enemy of his soul. He knows that he is now grappling for his very survival. Now consider for yourself whether in opposing sin you do it only jestingly? Well, such opposition is worth noting. Number two, you have an unmortified heart if you oppose corruptions sparingly. Perhaps you see sin to be sin and labor to oppose it, resisting and contending with your corruptions. But you do it sparingly. You will not do sin too much hurt. You deal with sin as David did with Absalom, saying, quote, Deal gently for my sake with the young man, close quote. 2 Samuel chapter 18, verse 5. And thus it may be that you deal gently with your sins, opposing them very sparingly. But a mortified man, he assaults his lusts with a holy cruelty. He will show sin no mercy and will not give any quarter to his lusts. His sins will not spare him and therefore neither will he spare them. Number three, you have an unmortified heart if you oppose sin partially, resisting some sins, but permitting your beloved lusts. Perhaps you oppose drunkenness, yet allow yourself to indulge in another sin, such as false weights or measures, cheating others in your shop and trade. Or perhaps you oppose adultery and fornication, yet yield to and indulge lust in your heart and mind. But mortification is like death to the body, which seizes upon all the organs and parts of the body. And thus, if you do not oppose all sin, you are a stranger to mortification. 
you deal with your sins as Saul did to the Amalekites in 1 Samuel chapter 15. Though he killed the Amalekites, yet he saved Agag, their king, and the best of their sheep and cattle, whereas he should have destroyed them all. And likewise, if you oppose some sins while harboring and indulging others in your heart, even as Saul lost his kingdom through his partiality, so also will you, by your indulgence and partiality, to some profitable or delightful sins, lose your soul. Sparing Agag cost Saul the loss of his kingdom, and sparing any lust in your heart will cause you to lose the kingdom of heaven. Number four, you have an unmortified heart if you oppose sin hypocritically or upon false ends and grounds. When a man opposes sin, not because it hinders him in doing good, but because it hinders him from receiving good, he opposes sin hypocritically. He never opposes sin because it hinders him in prayer and disrupts his holy duties, such as hearing and reading the word and so forth, but only because it hinders him from receiving good. He knows it will keep him from heaven, happiness and glory, well, the very good he hopes for and expects. He does not oppose sin because it is repugnant to the glory of God. Or he does not oppose sin because it is repugnant to the glory of God, but because it impugns and denies him his expectation. Number five, you have an unmortified heart if you oppose sin slavishly, or if it is only the fear of hell and the wrath to come that makes you resist a present corruption. You would not care what sins you did commit if hell and punishment did not follow after them. A man opposes sin slavishly when he does it merely because God punishes sin, and not because he hates it, because sin provokes the revenging justice of God, and not because it is against the holiness and purity of God, because there is a hell for sin and not because there is a hell in sin. But now, a godly man, he opposes sin filially, as if there were no devil in hell, and no punishment for sin. Still, a godly man would hate it because of its filthiness, because there is a hell in sin, which he sees to be worse than hell itself. Number six, you have an unmortified heart if you oppose sin constrainedly. And many men oppose corruption in their hearts, but only because they are haunted by the protests and convictions of conscience. And such a man has so much light in his natural conscience that he cannot yield to sin without some reluctance. He would gladly shake off his gnawing conscience or lull it to sleep so it could not do its duty and that he might 
sin in peace and security. Well, such opposition to sin is no evidence of mortification at all. Number seven, you have an unmortified heart if you oppose corruptions faintly and slowly. Perhaps at first you resisted corruptions resolutely, but in time grew faint, weary, and remiss in your opposition to sin. Perhaps you would not endure drunkenness or sexual impurity, but now you are more pliable and yielding unto sin. Many men in opposing sin are like French soldiers in battle, of whom it is said that there are no men in the world who make a fiercer onset and charge. But if they meet with a good repulse from the enemy, their courage quickly cools, daunting their resolve. And then no men are more cowardly and fearful than them. Can the same be said of you? Or perhaps at first you were very resolute against sin, but when the devil came upon you with a fierce charge, you grew faint-hearted, yielding and complying with sin. Balaam did this when Balak sent for him to curse Israel. At first he refused to go, saying to the princes of Balak, Quote, Get you into your land, for the Lord refuseth to give me leave to go with you. Close quote. Numbers chapter 22, verse 13. And again in verse 18 he says, quote, If Balak would give me his house full of silver and gold, I cannot go beyond the word of the Lord my God to do less or more. Close quote. And to this point, you would think that Balaam was a very good man. Yet when the king sent for him a third time, Balaam acquiesced and went. Objection. You may say that God bid him go, and therefore it is excusable. Quote, And God came unto Balaam at night and said unto him, If the men come to call thee, rise up and go with them. Close quote. That's verse 20. And yet when Balaam went with them the next morning, God's anger was kindled against him. That's verse 22. Now how can this be? Can God be angry with a man for doing that which he bids him to do? Answer. And to this I answer. Letter A. God bid him go conditionally. Quote, If the men come to call thee... Rise up and go with them. Close quote. And yet, we do not read that the men called him. Letter B. God bid him go. But as you bid a headstrong child to do something when he would have his own way, well, do it if you must. Take your own course and then see what comes of it. Well, God says the same to Balaam. If you are determined to go, and you love money, that is the wages of unrighteousness, so, well, then go with them and see what comes of it. Letter C. God bids him go, not in order to curse Israel, but so that he might bless her. 
Now the text says, quote, And God's anger was kindled because he went. Close quote. That's verse 22. God bid Balaam go in order that he might bless Israel, though he went with the intention of cursing her. And that was the reason God was angry with him. And thus it may be that you, like Balaam, refuse to satisfy your lusts once or twice, and yet embrace them the third time. Though you oppose sin resolutely at first, if you lose heart, becoming cowardly and weak, this is a sign that your heart is not yet mortified. Number 8. You have an unmortified heart if you oppose sin politically. Let me explain what I mean by this. A man may be said to oppose sin politically in two ways. Letter A. When a man opposes sin in order that he may avoid the outward judgment that follows the sin, and not because of the accompanying spiritual judgment, he opposes sin politically. Now this is what Abimelech did in Genesis chapter 20. When he learns that Sarah was Abraham's wife, he let her go, saying to Abraham, quote, What hast thou done unto us? And what have I offended thee, that thou hast brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? Close quote. That's verse 9. A wicked man may oppose sin because he knows it may bring evil upon his body, his household, or his kingdom, but not because it is a dishonor to God. Letter B. <coughs> Excuse me. A man opposes sin politically when he opposes one sin so that he may harbor another sin with less suspicion. Perhaps you have left your drunkenness in order to keep other sins without being suspected by others. In doing so, you play the politician, damning your own soul for outward appearances. And thus I have described these eight particulars, by which you see that one may oppose sin jestingly, sparingly, partially, hypocritically, slavishly, faintly, or politically. Now if you go no further in the opposition of your lusts, you cannot conclude that a work of mortification has been wrought upon your heart. This answers the first mistake wicked men make in the opposition of corruptions. Case number two. Perhaps you may say, I not only oppose corruptions, but blessed be God. I also restrain and keep them under, so that they do not break forth into the act in my life and conversation. Therefore, seeing that I have a power enabling me to restrain and subdue my corruptions, I hope that my heart is mortified, and that all things are well with me. Answer In answering this, I must acknowledge that it is a good step 
on the way to heaven for a man both to oppose and restrain his lusts from coming forth into the act. Yet I have three words to say to you, so that you may not be mistaken. Number one, a man may restrain himself from the commission of some sins merely from the principles and dictates of nature. We read that Socrates professed an addiction to chastity. He tells us that he never had a lustful thought, a wanton glance with his eye, or an act of sexual impurity in all of his lifetime, and yet he was a heathen. We read that Cato was so afraid of drunkenness that he never drank enough wine even to refresh himself. And such men as these have gone beyond many professing Christians in restraining themselves from sin. Number two, lusts may be restrained by the force of religious education and example. We read in 2 Kings chapter 12 verse 2 that, quote, Jehoash did that which was right in the sight of the Lord all his days, wherein Jehoiada the priest instructed him, close quote. Jehoash did that which was right in the sight of the Lord while Jehoiada was alive. But when he was dead, then Jehoash did wickedly. That's verse 3. Sin was restrained in him while he lived under the guidance of a good man, but afterwards it broke out. Perhaps you are under masters and tutors that have a strict eye on you. Sin may be restrained while you are under their tutelage, but when you grow into manhood and may do as you please, you may find yourself running out after many sins, which are now restrained by education and supervision, not through mortification. Number three. A man may restrain his lusts, abstaining from some sins merely because of the terror and trouble of conscience that lies upon him. His conscience tells him that there is a hell prepared for him if he continues to commit certain sins. It is as though he has flashes of hell fire in his face, and thus he dares not commit such a sin. Imagine a dog that has a bone lying in front of him, but his master's stick is over him. If he snatches at the bone, his master swats him with the stick and makes him leave it alone. The only thing keeping the dog from the bone is his fear of the master's stick. And the same is true of the wicked man if not for the gnawings and terrors of conscience that troubled and frightened him, he would not hesitate to indulge in any sin or wickedness whatsoever. Now such restraint as this does not in any way argue that your sins are mortified. And here I shall show you 
three particular instances in which sin may be restrained, though not mortified. Letter A. Your restraint from sin is not by mortification if this duty is a burden to you. If it is not voluntary, but rather obligatory or obligatory and does not align with your will. Perhaps you are unable to commit some sins because of sickness or lack of opportunity, and this is a grief and burden to you. And if this is your case, you have a very unmortified heart. Now a godly man, he is restrained from sin willingly. He counts it his happiness and a great mercy to have sin restrained. Therefore, examine your own heart. If it grieves your heart to have your sins restrained, so that you cannot enjoy your whores, drunkenness, and the satisfaction of your other lusts, running out into all manner of sins, well, if this is the case with you, then surely you have no spark of mortifying grace within you. Letter B. Your restraint from sin is not by mortification if you run eagerly after that sin when the restraint is removed. Perhaps you are restrained by a watchful eye that is over you so that you cannot chase after sexual immorality, drinking, Sabbath-breaking, idolatry, or so forth. Or perhaps you are sick and thus unable to do it. But if after these restraints are removed, and you then run out after these sins, it is a sad sign that your heart is unmortified and that you are not far from judgment and damnation. For the restraint from sin makes you run after it even more eagerly and urgently when that restraint is later removed. Letter C. Your restraint from sin is not mortification if it reaches only to the outward and more gross acts of sin, but not to inward and secret evils. As I told you before, you may abstain from great and scandalous sins by the mere light and instinct of nature, even as Socrates and Cato, who again were heathens, did. And therefore, unless the restraint of sin extends both to inward and bosom sins, as well as to open and notorious transgressions, you cannot conclude that the power of mortifying grace is at work upon your heart. The very light of nature teaches and convinces a man that he should not lie, steal, swear, drink to excess, commit sexually immoral acts, and so forth. But although a wicked man may suppress these great and crying sins, he cannot subdue smaller and less conspicuous sins, 
for he cannot discern these sins within himself. He may not consider such inward evils to be any evil at all. And thus we read of Aristotle, that he counted many things to be virtues which the scriptures condemn as vices, such as he, or such heathens considered jesting to be a, a virtue. But Paul tells us it is a sin, and therefore counsels us to avoid foolish talk and jesting as things not befitting. That's Ephesians chapter 5 verse 4. Aristotle also accounted it noble for a man to have a high opinion of himself, and that he deserved great places of honor and repute in this world. But the Apostle Paul looks upon it as pride of heart for a man to think highly of himself. Romans chapter 12 verse 3. Now I'm only hinting at these things in passing so that you may see that the light of nature is not bright enough to reveal many sins, especially if they are small and inward evils. You may suppress open and notorious sins without ever having the power of grace working upon your heart. True mortification lays a restraint upon inward and secret sins so that all of a man's endeavors are set against them just as they are set against more visible and notorious evils. Thus I have finished describing the first two kinds of mistakes that wicked men make in thinking that their corruptions are mortified, when indeed they are not. Now we come to the portion for discussion or personal reflection. And again, I encourage you, beloved, engage in this. Even if, even if you're by yourself and you've got to talk it out loud, or write it down and answer questions as, as if you would taking a test or something. Really do this thing. It will really help you if you're having trouble understanding uh, what's being read in these chapters. Number one. In what ways may a man falsely conclude that his corruptions are mortified when he finds in himself or when he finds in himself opposing certain sins? Why are each of these instances inconsistent with true mortification? Number two, what false motives for restraining sin may disguise themselves as true mortification? How do they differ from true mortification? Number three, examine your own heart. Are the manners and motives by which you strive to restrain sin consistent with true mortification? Explain your answer.